Peace to the goddesses, peace to the gods. This is your boy, God with Many Visions, and this is another episode of Convos with Living Legends. First and foremost, I'd like to give a big shout out to the first 16 guests on this wonderful platform, Convos with Living Legends, especially our last guest, KO. Shout out, a, a huge shout out to Cold Turkey Management. Um, it was it was a pleasure having my brother on and sharing sharing his knowledge in regards to navigating the realms of the entertainment industry. But today, today's a very special day. Today's seven seven, and um, I have I have a gentleman I consider my big brother. Um, this gentleman right here, he gave me the opportunity to speak in front of his class in, um, in at Morehouse University, and that's like one of the highlights of my life as a as a man. As a human being on on this life on this life form, so um, I'm truly grateful for this brother, and I'm so elated that he's on this episode. Um, Doctor Haru, please tell tell the people about yourself. Tell them everything about you. You know, I'm not gonna do too much talking. I'm just gonna ask one question. I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. After that, I'm gonna ask one question, and I'm gonna let you do your thing, big bro. Brother, I appreciate you first and foremost, brother. I I wanted to say I'm humbled with gratitude to be sitting here convenient space with you, you warrior. You've been on that front line, man, and it's an honor to be here. So I thank you. I sure. Um, yeah, very powerful day, brother. You know, I, um, I've been fasting straight liquids, man, for some time now as the messages are being downloaded. Um, today is the last day of serious, serious gateway, um, the third through the seventh every year. So a lot of powerful things are popping off right now. And we have been feeling that in the last couple of years. So there's a wake, a very powerful awakening. But um, I feel extremely honored for the simple fact this is my first podcast. Will not be my last, it was my first one. But so we can get into it, I think first and foremost, I want to be able to give honor to the family, right? The family I'll share, I'll share, I'll share. are responsible for having me to be who I am. I'm actually born and raised in Chicago, right? Many places, 63rd in Inglewood, 121st in Halsted, 48th in Hubbard. All throughout the city I lived, but there is this, this very small, maybe a hundred and something thousand plus, I like to call African or black paradise, which is about 25 minutes from Chicago by the name of Gary, Indiana. And that's where the majority of my family lived. My grandmother, who had nine children, her first oldest children, my mother being the second oldest, ended up migrating to Chicago. The rest of her children, the five youngest, stayed in Gary. So my connection was always there in Gary, Indiana. And I had the best of both worlds, Chicago, which is easily considered the cultural epicenter of what they call the Midwest. I'll show you. But Gary, Indiana, let's be very clear. It's time for me to put them on a map the same way Michael Jackson put them on a map. Gary, Indiana, hmm. when, when George Clinton went and did a concert there at the time when he did it, everybody knew Chocolate City to be Washington, D.C. at the time. Until he got to Gary, Gary. Indiana. And he said, oh, this is Chocolate City. We're talking about 98% African. My grandmother, grandfather, my aunts and my uncles, they're the ones who shared. 
no matter what happens, no matter how big things get, I'm going to always be humbled by my people because they raised me that way with a sense of humor, a sense of community, a sense of belonging. Never forget where you come from, but don't get it twisted. Keep it simple and be humane. So big shout out to Chicago. Now, if you look on my IG page, you know, I pondered on that. You know, I'm new to this technological thing, these platforms or what have you, but the ancestors spoke to me back on June 17th and said it's time. So I'm saying, well, how do, what do I put? What do I put as my labels? And one of the things that stood out, what do I bring? And if you look on it, I say scholar. Af- when, where Africana studies in holistic health intersect. It's very clear. I was awakened that ancestral memory bank came out of me, woke me up at the same time in 1996. I was a deep-seated Negro from Chicago and they had never even heard of the nation of Islam. But what happened is I remember I was working and I went across the street and said, I'm going to get me a a submarine sandwich. If anybody knows, I, I, I was in California at the time, Togo's. Togo's is equivalent to um, which a subway, but a little bit more classier, right? Now, that's what I thought. That's what I thought I was doing. It was a little bit classier, right? A little classy. But I thought I was going to go get a submarine sandwich. But what ended up happening, I look up in this little shopping center and I see this big old sign that says grand opening books in color now brother I wasn't reading but what I know now to be spirit the ancestors put me in a trance a waking trance in which I walked in there beautiful elegant soft spoken highly melanated elder by the name of Sherry said welcome come on in it was a small quaint spot but she had it packed with books. And I walked in. I walked in, brother, and I, it gravitated me right over to the history section. And there's one book that shows me. And that was Dr. Yosef A.A. Benyakinen's Black Man of the Nile and His Family. When I began to tap in that book, I knew something was happening. And everything was about to change as I knew it. As I further deep delve into the study of who Doc Ben was, who they affectionately call him, they call him peace be unto him. He's our ancestor now. But Doc Ben, so that we can set the historical record straight, Doc Ben is the African that introduced us in the Western Hemisphere to Kemet, ancient Nile Valley culture. Let me repeat that. Doc Ben is responsible for that. This, this who is the ancestor now was doing the work in the 20s and the 30s. He wrote We the Black Jews in Spanish in the 1930s. Oh. He's, well, he was doing trips to, back and forth to Kemet when it was unpopular or we did not know. So he became extremely significant. And once I read his book, I remember I went celibate. I went on the ground. I was a hermit, went to work and just read and read. And I read everything that he had in publication. 
Big ups to Black Classic Press out of Baltimore. Paul Coates is the founder and the publisher of it. You're the father of Ta-Nehisi Coates. And I read it all. And then the dots start connecting. These became my guys, my intellectual jegnas, what the West call erroneously mentors. So after reading all Doc Ben's book, I went on to read all John Henry Clark's books. And then I went on to read all of Asa Hilliard's book. Then I went on to read all of John G. Jackson and Chancellor Williams. And after I began to read them, and Jacob Carruthers, Baba Jetty Shimsu Jehudi, after I began to read them all, I didn't realize what was happening. I was being on, put on a path because after I read them all, I come to find out there's this organization, this scholarly organization called ASCAT, the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilization. And everybody I named minus Dr. John um, Leonard Jeffries, were the founders of ASCAT. Foundationless thinking and say, listen, Kemet is to African and African descendants what Greece is to Europe. So I got immersed into all the studies there, and that took me on my path. Red and red and red. I was in deep study for about nine years. Me and my brother went to Ghana, blew my top off. I said, whoa, I don't want to go back. But I had to go back. And the ancestors said, but before you go back, you're going to quit that good government job, brother. What? <laughs> you're going to quit that good government job and you're going to go to school. Now, I talked myself out of not being able to go to the ivory towers and get any degrees. You know why? Because I, it, was, it was nothing. It was procrastination's best friend called fear. I talked myself about, oh, I don't need it. I could teach at a university. I don't need no degrees or whatever. But the ancestors say, enough with that malarkey. Go to school. So I resigned in 2002, washed my hands with it, and I went to Boston. Not just Boston, the black section, Roxbury, you know where New Edition is from. I attended Roxbury Community College. Was the only black majority institution of higher learning in New England from Rhode Island down, from Maine all the way down to Rhode Island. The only one. And I spent two years there sitting at the feet of two main scholars for all my poets and my artists out there. One of my babas was Askia Torre. Askia Torre is one of the architects of what we know as the black aesthetic movement. He, was, he basically convened space with the Umbra poets. So I was real honored to be able to sit at his feet and get that wisdom. And my direct teacher, Brother Tony Menelik Vandermeer, who now teaches at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. So I sat at their feet and got the messages. Then it was time to move on. Ancestors at work again, applied for Morehouse, Morehouse accepted me, didn't want to give me no paper. Nine other universities accepted me, Harvard, UMass, Boston, Berkeley, all of them. But I wanted to go to Howard. I did not know why other than when Biggie talked about it and everybody was always puffy, was talking about HU. I said, I want to go there.
<laughs> right? I said, I want to go there. I didn't know the ancestors had a plan. I want to go there. So I applied early admission October. Two days before December 25th, I get a letter and it was like, Congratulations, you've been accepted at Howard. No money. I said, Whoa, hold up. I'm rocking a 4.0. I'm valid Victorian. I got to get something. Oh, sir, you know, we don't have anything. Everybody's trying to knock the door down and get into Harvard. So that was okay because everything was set up for me because the president at our school at the time was an elder who came out of retirement, Dr. Randolph Bromery. Peace be unto him. Dr. Randolph Bromery was the scholar, mathematician, who was at UMass Amherst in the 60s in which he was probably one of a handful of them, and he said that was a problem. The brother did so much work to get African faculty there that they made him the chancellor. He was there when Dr. J. Julius Irvin was at UMass Boston. He came out of retirement and said, oh, white institution across the street, Northeastern University, Northeastern Illinois University, or I'm sorry, Northeastern University in Boston tried to take it. He said, ah, came out of retirement. So I called him. I said, Baba, I ain't getting no money. HU alumni, who's also a Tuskegee Airman. He said, um, I'll make a call. I said, please, Baba, I got to go to Howard. I sat back. I didn't hear anything. But I remember the day I was remodeling in the bathroom. And it was, I believe it was on a Friday, whatever day it was, but it was like March 17th. About seven o'clock at night, ding dong. Went to the door, brother. It was a FedEx letter from Howard University offering me a four-year scholarship full ride. The tears rolled down my eyes. I said, oh, wow. So off to Howard I went. I didn't know why I was being there. Now, I spoke to you about my intellectual masters, a couple of them whose feet I was able to sit at, some of them had not. But I came to Howard, and I said, well, let me, this semester, as a transfer student, you didn't get many options. But one of the options, there was a course open, Afro-American Studies, um, Introduction to African-American Studies too. and I already know that's what I was going for. Come to find out, I'm sitting in the class, and it's this brother. And after 10 minutes, 10 minutes I'm dizzy. He didn't spewed about 50 books in 10 minutes off the top of his dome. I'm like, who is this cat? You said you know, 50 big bro? That's a five, lot. That's easy. He got to get his due. That's easy, but I'm saying 50. I'm being generous. So I say, who is this cat? Look on the syllabus. Dr. Greg Carr. I say, why does that name sound familiar? Why does that name sound familiar? So I go back home into the crates. And I started looking through all my ASCAT books, and ASCAT, in 1997, published a book with ASCAT money only called The African World History Project, The Preliminary Challenge. Jacob Carruthers, the editor, with Leon C. Harris, and mostly all the names are named, from Baba Theophile Obenga, Leonard Jeffries, John Henry Clark, Wulandella Wabogo, all of them. But at the end, there were three doctoral students, 
how did they get in there? Lo and behold. That is a beautiful one of, thing. One of the great, one of the graduate students was Greg Kamathi Carr. The brother whose feet I was sitting at. I, I was I was overcome then. And then the next person was his comrade, Dr. Mario Beatty. And his other comrade, his wife, Valethea Watkins. They were all PhD students sitting at the feet of the masters. So what the ancestors said is that you now must sit at the feet in the physical form of those who had the ability and the fortune to sit at everybody's feet that you read before you got here. Yeah. So the rest is history. I left there and went to go sit at the the founder of Cornell University's Africana Studies program, James Turner, who was actually the second president, John Henry Clark being the first, he was the second president of the African Heritage Studies Association. Then I went off to Temple. Why did I go to Temple? I remember being at Cornell. <laughs> and pondering, am I going back to Howard or am I going to go to Temple? And Dr. Carr gave me a call. He was sitting at the feet of the chair at the department, our pop. We call him Pops, Dr. Nathaniel Norman. He said, hey, brother, what's going on? What's your plan? I said, well, man, you know, I got two, man. I'm thinking about Howard and I'm thinking about Temple. Well, you know, Temple is his alma mater. Temple was Mario's alma mater. Okay. Temple was Belithia's alma mater. Where they went, as they were instructed to go there, he pretty much made it. And it wasn't really hard, but it was very persuasive. And he laid it down as on why you must go. So I went there. And I sat at the feet of who we call Pops, Dr. Nathaniel Norman. He was also on Greg's committee when he wrote his dissertation back in 1998. And I'm proud to say I was the last student of Dr. Norman's to be on my dissertation committee. He was the advisor chair, the biggest honor I can ever feel. So with brevity, brother, that was my journey in terms of Africana studies. I got 26 years under my belt. But I walked that walk the same time in terms of holistic health. And this is how it happened. I was so on fire. Starting in 96, I started a study group. It was me, my brother Robert Taylor, my brother Daru Rama, and we just building. And one day Rob came and said, hey, man, listen. I met this sister, brother. I went to go get some tacos. And... This sister, man, she's like a walking book. I went to order, and she came to spewing out her mouth. And he was like, man, can we, we need to have her at the study group. And, you know, I had, it was tight. I said, no, brother, come on. It's just the three of us, man. No, we don't need that. We good. He said, listen, man, I really feel we should let this sister come. It was the best decision that we collectively made. The sister came. She's my big sister, Michelle Thornton. When I say master teacher, it, you would have to see it to believe what I'm about to tell you. This is the only person I saw that was able to have on her headphones, listening to a lecture, watching a different lecture and reading a book and can recall everything that she was doing. You don't hear me. <laughs> you, don't, you, you don't, you don't, you didn't hear me. No, I hear you I loud said, and clear. I said, this was the only person I ever saw
lecture, listen to a different lecture, and read and can recall it all. We knew we were sitting at the feet of a master. We built him for a couple months, and she came. She dropped three books on the table and said, you brothers need to start taking care of your health. We looked at her like she was crazy. Take care of my health. You brothers need to clean it all up. Out of the three of us, we were intrigued, but I took it and ran. My sister was all the way out in California, but she was from Philadelphia, Illadale. Why do I bring that city up? Because after chopping up what I call the holistic trinity, the three books she dropped, one was Queen of Fools, Heal Thyself. Number two was Dr. Layola Africa's African Holistic Health. And then the third one was Dr. Jewel Pookum's Vitamins and Minerals from A to Z. After reading all those books, I was clear. I'm from Chicago, Mississippi roots, brother. I ate everything on that hog from the rooter to the tutor. But everything changed, so I started looking for a holistic practitioner, somebody that can help me. Lo and behold, I found my master, my Jegna. The name of the place was Bomani's Village. Naturopathic doctor by the name of Ilan Diallo Bomani. I walk in there on fire, telling them what to do, and she say, well, okay, brother. I started doing the work and doing the work, come to find out she's from Philly. You see the connection happening now. I say, she started telling me what to do. She did colonics, had me doing all the work. And then it got to a point, she said, listen here, young brother. You are very serious about doing this work. How about this? I know you work, you got your job. But if you help me run this center, do the things that we need to be doing, you can sit at my feet. And to the best of my ability, I'll give you a $100,000 education for free. Just be my apprentice. That's where the journey started for me, brother. I became infectious. And everything that she gave me, I began to disseminate it and heal others. So I became what you know as E. Earl Thote wrote a book. And he uses a quote about during the 19th century, you had some intellectual giants who had not went to the academy and got pieces of paper, degrees, but they were just as intellectual, if not even more so, and he called them scholars without portfolio. And that's exactly what I became, is a holistic practitioner without portfolio, because it was really about that reading, who we know as Carter G. Woodson, the father of Black History Month, said in his book, Miseducation of the Negro, there are two types of education. The one you get from the institutions of higher learning and the one that you give yourself, what we call self-tuition. After sitting at the feet of Dr. Ilan Diallo-Bomani, that's when I really started to take the work of holistic health very seriously. So I just began to read all the masters, read them, study them. The first being I, um, Chicago in them. It's interesting when I told you about I was in the middle, right in the midst of Chicago, but not coming from a background of a family who was conscious or had information, I didn't even know. On 63rd and Inglewood, I remember living there for several years with this, this elder by the name of Alvinia Fulton. Now, Alvinia Fulton, they like to give the credit of this, this so-called holistic movement to Berkeley, California in the 60s when they had the, the big old awakening or what have you. But let's be very clear. That African Alvinia Fulton from Tennessee 
set up shop in Chicago, where on 63rd in 1958, the Photonial Institute, she had, she, masters of their craft were coming to sit at her feet. We all know Ossie Davis and Ruby D, the renowned actor and actresses. They're both ancestors now. Peace be on them. What makes the two of them so significant is that when you truly have mastery and you are humble, you are able to convene spaces even that you're not even supposed to convene. And those two would successfully be able to be in Hollywood, have a career in Hollywood, but they were black nationalists. Big time. Black nationalists, right? Right? So much so that Ossie Davis was uncle, Ruby was auntie to Malcolm X. I'll say. Ossie Davis did the eulogy for Malcolm X. Now, why am I bringing them up? Because they said at the feet of Alvunia Fulton. You can read it in their autobiography. She helped so many individuals. Even what's your, what what what's what's the um what's the NBA player? They try to give him so much credit. White boy plays a center. He was back in the seventies. I mean, Portland 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 Trailblazers. Um, Bill, Bill Walton. Bill, Bill Walton, Walton was one of her. Bill Walton was one of her students. Bill her Walton most, was Bill Walton, sir. Wow, that's the, yo, that's big right there. Now now, now check this out. Her most visible student who took the reins of that ancestral wisdom she had and ran with it was none other than Dick Gregory. Peace be unto him who's an ancestor now. that's an ancestor. Dick Gregory talks about how he was over 300 pounds and he began to sit at her feet. And in his time, he was basically one of the most visible activists for health. Created his own product, the Bohemian Diet. I remember in the 80s. <laughs> right? I wrote about it on how he was healing everybody. Went over to Ethiopia, giving his product up to the starving babies. He brought, he brought that, was it Marlon? He brought Marlon. Marlon had a severe car accident. It was Dick Gregory that brought him back to health. On that front line as a student sitting at the feet of Alphenia Fulton. So after reading Africa's work, Jewel Pokum's work, and Queen of Fools' work at that time, I began to read Dr. Paul Goss. My West Coast folks know who Dr. Paul Goss is from Compton. He is who we would call the Baba. If you were in Ghana and you wanted to know who reigned supreme, he would be the Asentehene of Africana holistic health. He was the one with new body products out of Compton. He's the triple OG. I sat at the feet. I had him at the, I interviewed him for my dissertation, but he clearly is, in my eyes, probably the most masterful raw chef there is. So much so he created his own cuisine, Sunfired Foods. Dr. Aris Latham. So I just really sat at their feet, brother, and read and read and read and read and read. Then was able to sit at the feet of Greg Carfield, who basically got his instruction from John, from John Henry Clark, got his instruction from Jacob Carruther. Then it became infectious. I was like, oh, I don't have no books until I met 
Greg. And as it was given to him, he gave it to me. As he gave it to so many others, so many others. Read, and when you finish, read. When you finish, read some more. He said, read. And when you finish, read some read more. Read some more. <laughs> you feel me? Ba- Baba Jetty Shimsu Jehudi Jacob Carruthers told him, and I posted this quote several days ago, the reward for hard work is more work. Baba John Henry Clark told him, you hear opposing views? White exceptionalism views, philosophical views, don't get mad. Get smart. Yeah, I had the fortune of sitting at his feet back in 1998. And, and I, don't, I don't, of all those who know Baba Clark, there was, a, um, there was a series, I forget my brother in L.A. during the 90s, he used to do the great debates. But it was a long was um, the white nationalist, you know, the corporate right was funding these scholars. And the one scholar, um, Mary Lefowich, Ashkenazi European scholar, not in Greece with a hat on a white Greek statue of a Malcolm X hat. So they're on stage. Now, you know, the African community is in droves there, ready for him to just hand it to her. Well, brother, the conversation with the debate, it was, first of all, there was no debate. And it was over with before it even started. She didn't even try to proverbially click her intellectual guns. Because Baba Clark said in the masterful way that he did it in his slow, prophetic voice. He said, I do not debate with those who are not on my intellectual level. Sure. All, all others I teach. And the crowd went bananas, but... Wow. I do not debate. <laughs> those <laughs> he said, <laughs> that are not on my intellectual level. Yo, he said... Hey, all what's others the point? I teach. What's the point? So that veracity for reading was passed down and given to me, and given to others who have set at the feet of Greg Carr, who is now the current chairman of Afro-American Studies at Howard. And Lord, do they have some warrior scholars there doing the work. And if I'm not mistaken, Howard undergraduate Africana Studies Department in the U.S., but I got to give a shout out to him. If you, those who don't know, he, he and Sister Karen Hunter, who's an amazing professor, journalism expert, the two of them got together. I believe, man, I can't, I believe we're on episode 60 or, I mean, 69 or 70. But going to YouTube is called In Class with Carr. The motto is it's the largest Africana studies classroom in the world. Go check it out. It speaks for itself, but it gets a little bit more fine-tuned than that. Please go on to narrative.com. Start with the K. K-N-A-R-R-A-T-I-V-E. Narrative.com. The two of them have collabed together. Something special on there. 
You have three ways and you can become a member. No excuses. You can be a free member. You may not get all the intellectual nuggets that you want to see, but you can be a free member. You can be a monthly member or you can be a annual member, right? So I had the fortune, man, to teach at Temple while I was getting the PhD. Temple was, when I tell you it's the first department in the world to offer a PhD in Africana studies. And we love the space for the simple fact you got to write on what you wanted to write on about African folk whenever and wherever you find them without any pushback. Very sacred space it was. That's why we went there. Went there. I had the opportunity to teach usually what happens in the PhD program because you're getting, they're taking you through the intellectual fire. What we would say, they put the, the scholarship in the DNA and your bone structure. So they try to keep you focused on your studies. Nah, Temple was like, check this out. After your first year of instruction, you're going to start teaching. Primarily what PhD programs is give you three years to try to get all your comp, get all your required classes out and everything. Then they have you teach, not Temple. Temple said, we're building scholars, we're building teachers. So we're going to school full time and teaching a class. Learning as you go. Learning as you teach. One of my students stands out. His name is Lester Spellman. He was an athlete, ran track or what have you. Lester's not on Instagram, but Lester is actually on LinkedIn. And I, I saw Lester maybe a couple months ago on LinkedIn and he looked like he, sm he swallowed a Volkswagen Beagle. He's so big. <laughs> Muscle-wise, the brother is fit and he's training athletes how to run faster, what have you. I'm so proud of him. Then I left and came to Atlanta to do my writing. I went to, I left Atlanta. Actually, I got to Atlanta December of 2016 so I can focus on my writing for my doctoral dissertation. And in that meantime, toward the latter of it, I got a job. Um, I went to a job fair to teach, and I was like, well, you know, I've taught, I trained officers in the military, in the Air Force. I trained them in DOD. I taught at the university level. There's something missing, K through 12. And they say, if you really want to teach, you want to know what real hard work is as an educator, go teach K through 12. Oh, they never lied. I went to a job fair, and the sister saw my resume. She said, brother, come here. We're going to interview you right now. She interviewed me. She said, you called me and said, Yo, you need to come to the school. Are you familiar with Westlake High School, my brother? I am. Westlake, for those who don't know Westlake High School in Atlanta, Georgia, the I call it Cam little, Newton. <laughs> come on now, Cam Newton and who else? Who was a, who before him? Pac-Man Jones. Pac-Man Pac Jones. Jones. You can't yes, forget. Sir. You can't forget the um, the safety from KC Berry. Um, something Berry. Uh oh, uh oh, teach brother. Teach was he before yeah. or after? Was he before or after? Um, Eric Berry. Pac-Man Jones. Eric Berry. He was after Pac-Man Jones. He had a twin brother. Him and his twin brother played, and actually his twin brother was better than him. But he's the one. Eric Berry's the one who made it to the NFL. Teach, brother. See, and this is so beautiful about this circle right here. And let's be very clear. Uh, we approach this knowledge building in the form of teaching and learning takes place simultaneously, right? I should. At the same time. There always has to be an intergenerational transmission of knowledge, right? My brother, my brother, Dr. Josh M. Myers, who he was, we were in the same cohort at Temple, a genius, 
I always give it up to him. I have no problem giving this young brother his due. Graduated with his PhD at 25 years old. You want to know what that really means? I only know another person that did it at 25, and that was Martin Luther King Jr. And before him was Walter Rodney, who wrote How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, and he got his PhD at 24. This is who Josh is. Me and Josh were the same cohort, wrote his PhD. The brother was honored enough, and I was honored to be able to listen to Jill Scott's podcast on educating our babies just dropped. And he talked about the instructions. See, he's living it now. He's already an associate professor at Howard in Africana Studies. And he's living the instructions. A very ancient concept that comes out of Kemet called Seba. Right? And he was talking about it. And he was talking about, and Seba, it means instruction. Right? That's what it means. But you are also in the space of learning when you are teaching, right? True. See, one thing about the ivory towers, if Africana studies is taught from an African center, what we do is deconstruct ways of knowing based on the Western perspective, and we do it from an African perspective. For example, if you look at classrooms K through 12, if you look at universities and colleges, if you look at lecture halls, they're all set up a certain type of way. Single file line, podium in the front. This is all based on Germanic thought. A great book on that is Williams Clark. He wrote Academic Charisma. The origin of the research university. And at the beginning of it, you get to see from everything from the, the hoods and the gowns and how they set up classrooms or what have you. They set it up all, this is how it's supposed to be. And if you're not clear on African ways of meaning making, you would basically mimic that. But African people ain't never rock like that. We are 360 degrees. We're a cyclic people. We teach in circles, right? This is yep. what Joshua's hitting on. You teach in circles because everybody has an equal part, right? I say. Him uttering ancient wisdom, quoted, and he said, listen, you have to create the space in which the students are also the teachers because nobody, I don't care how many books you read, nobody is the master on every subject. Somebody comes to the table mastering something. And if you are truly instructing and teaching at the same time, you afford that opportunity to do that, right? So that's extremely important. And I had, I was blessed. I was gifted enough when I got to Westlake High. The principal, the, it was the assistant principal that brought me in that convinced the principal to say, we need this brother in here. I had no teaching certificate, but I had the skill set. Came in and wrote the curriculum for Africana Studies. Now to best of my knowledge, there is no other school in the state of Georgia that made that mandated in the history of Georgia. I taught African and African-American history while I was there from an unapologetic standpoint. And I loved every minute with my babies and see, they're going to always be my babies, but I got to get up. They grown now. Westlake class of 2017, all of them graduated this year with their bachelor degrees. Yo, that's beautiful. I promise you I got about 17 of them that went to HBCUs. When I stepped in the place, I only had a handful of them. Ah, 
I don't know. 17 easy, brother. And I had over 200 students. That's quite amazing to me. And they're doing big things. Listen, don't get mad at me, babies, if I don't mention everybody, but there's two of them that stand out. I have an intellectual daughter by the name of Winter Holiday. I got to give a big shout out to her. She is a beautification specialist, right? Check out on IG. She's at Win Turk. That's W-Y-N-T-E-R-C. Win Turk. And to keep it complimentary, there's my brother Reginald Robinson. I, I single him out because he was 10 years ahead of the time that I was when I started doing this work. When I met this young, real quiet, I already knew he was a master in the waiting. This young brother, while he was going to school at the age of 16, read every holistic book I threw at him. All the three I named, and then some. Buckle up your chin straps. He already got his sight. He went to Xavier, if he's not still there, in, in Louisiana, another HBCU. I just get on the IG platform. Xavier's you know, an HBCU? Xavier, yes, sir, in, 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 okay. in Louisiana. Oh, okay. Yes, sir. I was, getting, you know, it's I was two getting Xavier. confused with the one in Ohio. Forgive there me. There you that. go. It's two of them. No, no, no problem, but it's two of them, right? You got two of them. So yeah, we he, do. He, yes, sir. So he went to the one in Louisiana. So I'm just getting on IG, right, three, four weeks. I look up, and I'm seeing his product, and I'm like, whoa, hold up. What Reggie doing? Now, Reggie been studying nutrition. This young brother already got his all-natural hair product line. Wow. His IG is Burgeen. You can get him at, at B-E-R-J-E-A-N, or what we say in French, Jean, right? Burgeen underscore. And the name of his products are Bernicia Jean Hair Products. They are doing things. And there's so many of them that are doing things that I'm so proud of them. They making it happen, man. That intelligentsia, that African intelligentsia is something else. So, brother, forgive me, man. No, but I big bro, I got to ask you this, big bro. How please. important is it for you to, to elevate these young minds, these, the young generation coming behind you, mm, to elevate them through the knowledge of history, through the knowledge of power of self? How rewarding is that for you? Mm, that's a great question, brother. Words, words really don't describe it. It's kind of, it becomes duty-bound, responsibility. You know, I, 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 I understood the way it came to me, right? The ancestors, the Neturu came to me and gave it to me that way. Well, it wasn't a person per se, but spirit talked to me. But I've always felt, being that I was in my psychological slumber, and I was awakened through reading those books, what Greg Carr calls the ancestral whispers on the printed page that woke me up. So I knew the more I read, I had to be able to share what we call memory, not history, memory. memory. I had to share, I had to share the memory with the babies because each one teach one, right? Cache. Each one teach one, and they are the future. They are the future. So it's it goes without saying, man. That's how we always, you see this form come up in so many ways of the responsibility of looking back, right? Reaching back so that you can understand memory on how you move and shake in the present and how you're going to move forward, right? There's a, um, 
there's an ancient Egyptian term or comedic term in Metanetia called Wehemi Mesu. Now, during the 12th dynastic period, which was a very key period in Kemet, is what we would call the literature age. You know, the racism in historiography would try to teach that Africans were basically grounded in the oral tradition. There was no writing, malarkey. Writing as we know it started in Middle Egyptian era, starting with the 11th dynastic period with that African by the name of Mentuhotep who ushered in the 11th dynasty, which was the Middle Egyptian period, going on to the 12th. Pharaoh Amenhotep II instituted a term called Wehemi Mesu. And what did it really mean? What he was saying is that we have to look back to the traditions, the ideas, the culture imperatives of our ancestors in this long line of culture production, ancient Nile Valley culture, and we have to reinscribe that. Kemet is not perfect. They had their moments what they would call the intermediate period where there may have been some internal struggles or what have you, but it always rose above that. So with the Wahimi Mesu, he instituted, let's go back to the third dynastic period and grab from that deep well so we would stay in the spirit of my eye. Now, what's key about the third dynastic period? Well, we call that the old kingdom. That was actually ushered in by Pharaoh Narmer or Aha. You seen the brother. Yeah. You seen you seen the statue of him and he got on what we know as a kufi. Right? He's the he's the one that's responsible for unifying upper and lower Kemet. And what we call Smaitawi. That kingdom, the old kingdom, the first and the second and the third is key, particularly the third, because that's where pyramid building began. It was ushered in by the pharaoh Seneferu, who said, an intergenerational transmission, a logic project in which we're going to connect with the cosmos. So he starts the pyramid building, the red brick pyramid, until he perfected it and become and created the first pyramid that had a 90 degree angle. And then down that genealogy came his progeny, Khufu. The only standing in my eyes, the true standing wonder of the world today, what they call the Great Pyramid of Giza and Medunetra, the, the Merku, that's still standing in his progeny Khafra built the pyramid that's right next to it. In his progeny, Menkara. So when you look at Kemet and you see those three pyramids, all three of them next to each other, right? You're like, oh, that's cute. That looks nice. One of them looks bigger than the other one. But guess what? Our ancestors were so tapped in. They used that melanin, brother, to convene spaces with the stars, the cosmos, to be able to create heaven on earth. And when the West started really looking at what was going on at first, it was like, oh, if you look at it from an aerial view, these pyramids are not in alignment. And then they realized something. Whoa. 
those pyramids were aligned in the direct longitude and latitude of what we know is the Orion's belt. Do you hear me? On the ground. Man, they keep they keep they keep playing with us like like we 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 ain't the originals. <laughs> like, yeah. we, like we not the originals. Brother, the Association for the Study of Classical Africa Civilization have deaded that. And the way you know, the way you know it's been deaded is when you're in silence. You have to be very suspect. You have to be very suspect on the scholars of our history that they put in the forefront. I'm not saying there are none on the front line, but let's be very clear. There are a plethora of them on the front line who are actually that institute what the late Dr. Anderson Thompson, who was also one of the instrumental figures, founders of ASCAT, called Sambo Historiography. They do the tap dancing for you, right? So for those that us that don't know and they see them on the screen, they think that is who it is. But no, my teachers taught me. The ones that you know are doing it, really doing the work, white scholarship ignores them as if they don't exist. Do you hear me? Yep. But they know. They know. Shake and to Jope, we call them today's multi-genius, right? The modern day Imhotep. We got to give a big up to Morehouse College because Morehouse College became learning the only trip that Shaker and Dejope, the great Senegalese scholar, he came to Atlanta and it was Morehouse that brought him here. They wrote a whole piece on the proceedings of that, brother. Why am I bringing him up? Because he becomes key. The same way Doc Ben was the first to introduce us to Kemet and say we need to look back at ancient or classical African civilizations, particularly Kemet, ancient Nile Valley culture, Shaker Antijoke came with the science, the linguistics, the history, the mathematics, to the point that Jacob Carruthers was, uh, I believe at the time he was a black nationalist, but he got the word and was like, yeah, I need to go to Senegal and sit at this African's feet. So guess what? Baba John Henry Clark wrote the letter of introduction for Dr. Jacob Carruthers, and he went and sat at the feet of Sheikh Antijope and Sheikh Amdiro, laid instruction out, and say, we must look at the language. Metonetia, regardless of what racist scholarships say, it is the oldest language. A very beautiful language that is not only visual, it's iconography written in, in, in different forms, pictorial forms or what have you, but it is a language from African people in which he said we must unearth it and you must learn that language. Jacob Carruthers took, took that knowledge, came back to the institution where he taught Northeastern Illinois University and began to study it and teach it at the same time. There we go again with Seba, studying it and teaching it and learning it. And this is how Asket began to form, in which he became very clear. Shaykhan Dijop was the master teacher. I don't, brother, I don't need to be familiar with the UNESCO. 
UNESCO is the United Nations Educational, Social, and Cultural Organization who came together and said, hey, you know, let's go ahead and do a general history of Africa. And we're going to do um, several, a, 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 a plethora of volumes dealing with Africa. The problem with that is it was a multicultural spin on it. You had Arab scholars on, in addition to African scholars or whatever. And we got to be real clear. In order for us to be able to tell the story the way we need to tell it, it needs to be African minds and African money. It needs to be African minds with African money and not accepting any paper from those that have any of their hands in our annihilation of our thought, our memory, or what have you. And ask it, said, okay, that's where the preliminary challenge came from, the African World History Project. That's where it came from, right? And Mario Beatty at Howard, who's now the, he's the international president of ASCAT. Grant Carr is the vice president of ASCAT. Valethea Watkins is on that board of ASCAT, and they are continuing that tradition. There's a, there's a journal out right now, which is a continuum that called Compass, the Journal of the African uh, the Journal of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilization, doing that work. Why am I bringing UNESCO's History of Africa? Because if you look at volume two, I'm sorry. If you look at the General History of Africa volume, yeah, it's volume two. In there is an article in which they did a proceedings in 1974. All the scholars got together. These multicultural blend of scholars got together talking about Kemet. They wasn't ready for they was not ready for Sheikh Antijope and his comrades. They weren't ready. He comes in there, Egyptologist, scientist, his protege, Dr. Theophile Obanga, who's still living. Jean Vacutia and Jean Leclant come together and Sheikh Antijope comes in there and blows their top off. He was able to get some of the, what they call mummies, the cots, and basically do some studies on it. And he created what we know as the melanin dosage test. I don't know if you've heard about this, brother. I heard of that. He did the melanin dosage test to show, and he had points of preference to show that these Africans, these were Africans, not just phenotypically, these were Africans culturally. They all agreed that he did some sound leadership, some sound work, right? However, the racism in the scholarship about Kemet still continues because, again, those who are masterful, they get silenced, right? But that's our job. That's yeah. our job to put it out there to let them know, oh, that work does not get dead. That work basically doesn't go escape. We're going to speak truth to power in terms of that. But the scholarship is there. What's interesting about American scholarship, do you know they all the way up until the beginning of the 20th century, the scholarship, no matter who wrote it, always had always spoke to how it was Africans that were basically the progenitors and the originators of comedic culture until the way the scholarship had a way with those those who control used the University of Chicago. James Breasted, who was an Egyptologist, began to start what I call Caucasianized Kemet. Caucasianized it to the point that we're talking about a little over 100 years. And you got folks arguing, was, oh, were they black? What does it have to do with their color? If you really want to know, if you really want to know what racism looks like, look at all the movies on the ancient Nile Valley culture. If it was an issue, with it, why are they all white? Exactly. Where the Africans at? Man. 
the scholarship said, but where the average that tell see that tells you what they don't want you to know because they go out of their way showing you that. But we know better. We got the scholarship. We understand what it is. Why? There's one article in there's one article in the preliminary challenge, the African World History Project, that really kind of desert. There's so much scholarship out there, brother. But I'm I, I must give credit where credit is due. Baba Asa Hilliard. One of our greatest minds, a renowned educational psychologist, peace be unto him, who used to be the superintendent of schools in Liberia. His wife was once the mayor of East Point, Georgia. But he was the, he had an endowed chair at Georgia State until he transitioned in, I believe, 2007. Full of, way, full of Callaway professors educational scholar who wrote many pieces the maroon within us selected essays on african-american community socialization say by that word there's that word again the reawakening of the african mind african power and so many he was so powerful as an educational psychologist he felt it was important to let's go back to see what our ancestors and how they viewed education, right? How did they view it? So much that he wrote, uh, he was one of the editors of um, Testing African-American Students, putting that on his head of this so-called, these racist standardized testing, right? But in the preliminary challenge, brother, he wrote an article that this kind of ends the garbage. If you really read it, if you had any questions or any doubts, you wouldn't have any more. And in the preliminary challenge, um, Baba Hilliard wrote, Waset, the eye of Ra and the abode of Mayat, the pinnacle of black leadership in the ancient world. With brevity, let me tell you what the article does, brother. He does so eloquently. He shows you that every great moment and what we know to be is ancient Egypt came from the cultural predecessors in the south of Kemet. When you see Kemet in the great period of Giza and you see all the edifice from the Tekkens and all that going on up in Cairo, that is a transference of ancient knowledge from the south using that cultural highway called the Nile River that flows from the south to the north. And what do we know today what country is south of Egypt today, sir? South of Egypt today. South of Egypt. South of Egypt. Because Egypt is in the south of Africa. So Kim is in the northeast. If we go a little bit further down, let me give you a hint. The brothers and the sisters are blue-black. Um, 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 I can't. It's in the tip oh, of my tongue. Got, I man, listen, I'm with you. We're hitting this together, brother. Sudan. Is it, yeah, is it? <laughs> it's unquestionable who the Sudanese people are, correct? True. It's unquestionable in terms of how they look, the phenotype, highly melanated people. When you study classical African civilization, you see in that area that we call Sudan is where they came from. Narmer the pharaoh of the first dynasty from the south. Mentuhotep, who ushered in the Middle Kingdom, from the south. So he shows he is shaping our contemporary minds to say, enough with the Caucasianization of Kemet. He shows us 
that they came from what you call today the Sudan. And how do we know it to be true? Because the, they have went out of their way to smite that truth. If you're familiar with dams, South Egypt, north of Sudan, is the Aswan Dam. And whenever you build a dam, you create a man-made lake, Lake Nasir, right? Guess what's at the bottom of Lake Nasir, brother? Over 200 pyramids. Yo. <laughs> that are underground, sir. Underground. Underwater. underwater, because why? If they are visible, you cannot deny the African origin of classical African civilization. So, brother, I appreciate you, man. I, I knew that introduction was going to be what it was. And uh, I appreciate you offering me the opportunity, but um, I, I want to put this back on you because you are you are a master in this, and you sh you showed me I wasn't ready for you. When you nah, big bro, class. you were, you a living legend, big bro. Man, stop, man! I won't take that, brother. I'm big a bro, I'm just no. A, I'm just a, I'm just a mere student, sir, but... No, nah, you a living legend. I put it to you <laughs> like this. Every melanin being on this planet is a living legend. And I'm going to say why. Because like, like the good books tends to say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. At this present moment in time, when you, unfortunately, our people's last due to the circumstances of society, of of um, systemic oppression and things of that nature. But trust you, believe me, we will regain our place. Me and you may not be there to see that. Our children may not be there to see that, but I can promise you our children's children will be able to because the, the path that we on as generational curse breakers, I feel like we are leaving a blueprint behind that our children and their children and their children's children can follow to be greater than us. So they won't have to go through what we had to endure. So I feel like we endured all this BS on their behalf so they can be greater than us and they can re, uh, regain the mantle of greatness that we was brought on this planet to achieve. So like to me, every melanin being, because the melanin woman is, is the foundation of life. The melanin man is the protector of life. And the Menelin child is the future of life. And they all three represent the Unk. I received that, brother. I, I will tell you this. What, what, what I do know is um, it's, not, it's about the liberation of the African mind, right? That's what, the that's what the struggle is about. And we are seeing the contemporary Babylon falling before our eyes, particularly in this settler colony that we live in right now. It's happening before us, brother. But I, I was I was tapping reading Sabah and um Baba Asa Hiria, he wrote this back in June of 1985. And it's called Freedom with the question mark. He said our first mistake was that we thought of freedom as a place rather than as a continuation of a struggle. Tyranny never sleeps. Our second mistake was that we thought of freedom as a goal rather than as a launching pad from which 
to reach our goals. With purpose, freedom hardly matters. Our third mistake was that we felt that freedom made us free. That, however, is license, not freedom at all. Freedom is being shackled to identify purpose and direction in being in constant pursuit. So that's in direct alignment with what you were saying. And we are witnessing it. And I know I am going to see it happen. And, and that's the only way we get where we go is if you can believe we can win, right? True. The fact that you have combos with living legends, the fact that you, you have the audacity to have a t-shirt that says Black Matrix. You have the audacity to be African-centered. Let you know you believe we can win, right? Because you got a deep-seated love for our people. I knew that when I first met you. I'll say. But I go back to you. I was asking myself, I said, man, we'd be all over the place. We'd be talking for four or five hours. We can do this thing. What are, what are we going to do? And you and I talked about it briefly. And I said, man. And I said, well, I know what I want to be able to talk about it initially. But I said, well, what can we, what can we really get on? And so, say by, said, I got to worry about it. It'll be instruction and teaching going on. So I wake up this morning, six o'clock in the morning. What's the first thing I see? The president of IET assassinated. Yo, I said, ooh. Yeah. I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. The what? Isn't this something on 7 7 at 7 o'clock? I'm going to be with my brother, God with many visions. This African, what goes through his vein, he's Haitian. So, brother, man, I got something to say, but I ain't got nearly enough to say than what you got. Man, talk to me. Well, you know, today today is a is a very meaningful day, uh, meaning that it's seven seven, knowing that the um the number seven means completion. So when all I can think as a Haitian man of African ancestry and I see the the death of the the um the president of Haiti, first thought that came to mind was the chickens come home to roost. Like the great doc um like the great Malcolm X once said. I don't, I'm not saying that, that he deserved it, but I'm just stating the fact that this man could have avoided all of this because he already knew there was a ticket on his head because of the things that was going on. It's just sad to see that his wife lost his, her life too in the process. Mm, all of this morning didn't been, say that. She died? She ended yeah, up dying? Yeah, she eventually okay. um, succumbed to her wounds. All of this could have, all of this could have been avoided. You know, because the man could have walked away back in February and not looked back. But he didn't want to cede his secede his power back. And um, you know, things he 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 allowed a lot of things to go on that shouldn't. He allowed too many kidnappings, he allowed a lot of people to lose their lives. And he was basically uh that he was he was like the highest bidder. He was looking for the highest bidder. So with this going on. This is just not, hey, I'll put it to you like this, big my brother. Haitians had nothing to do with his death. Yes, it was an in job, inside job, but I blame all the powers outside of Haiti. They played a part in this man's assassination, and and I feel that that the day that it happens, because you know, 
these these entities know what they're doing. They know what they're doing when they do it on certain days. And I feel like his life is a sacrifice. To is a mm. sacrifice to only heighten the energies, the heighten the energies and still the energies of the melanin beings. Mm. You know, so mm. they they do these things on certain days, on certain frequencies, because they know the frequency that's going to become. Like, mm. who who really speaks about Haiti? Mm. Who really speak about Haiti on a daily basis? But look when Haiti becomes the the hate that my nation, my country is being spoke on because the man lost his life. Yeah, brother. The man. Um. The man the man lost his life, so I feel like this was a sacrifice, and I hope us as melanin beings we can take this and reverse that sacrifice, and you know because this has to stop. This has to stop. There, there, you know, for our people, this has to stop. You know, we we have to get back to our greatness. Yes, you know, um, but thank you for that, brother. I um, I asked you. For one, not only you're Haitian, like I said, when you came to my class, you were able to articulate aspects of the Haitian Revolution, being that you are indigenously from there, and highlight names that I forgot and add names that I didn't know about. And I said, oh. And then the ancestors brought that up for us to have a discussion about it. So I appreciate that. Um, no, I appreciate is... you, bro. I appreciate you, big bro, because... You gave me the opportunity. You gave me the platform to talk to these young, beautiful brothers, these young men, these young gods, and and pour life into them. You like just thinking about it. I'm getting goosebumps of that day. When I tell you that one of the one one of the most impactful days of my life is up there. Is up there. Oh, give, give thanks, brother. Give thanks, man. You know, and knowing from thanks. where I came from, knowing from the element I came from, knowing from the mm -hmm. mindset I came from, and mm -hmm. I was able to talk to these young guys, man. I'm forever grateful for you, big bro. Man, listen, uh, and I, you, brother, and I will say to you, Bookman Duddy, Henry Christophe, Jean Jacques de Salonese, Francois Mackendall, and all the voiceless Africans who were responsible for making a reality into the only successful overthrow Ashe. of European enslavement. Let's, let's be very clear. I have to make the connection as to what happened because this is something that happens time and time again to spaces in which Africans and nations where Africans are the majority. It happens on the continent. But in terms of the Western Hemisphere, we have to speak particularly about Haiti. Because it's on the bank of the river that Bookman Duddy, along with Francois Mackendall, and, I, and it, 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 it loses my memory now. It was another, the sister, they, they were the two healers using herbal medicine as weaponry, along with those unnamed ones that called on. And he said, Bookman Duddy said, throw away the image of the white god. Tap into the Orisha Ogun. And everybody know Ogun is that entity of war, the smelter of iron, so you can make the weaponry to fight the war. He called on to Ogun to start that revolution, to start that putting on its head 
the French Empire. Now this becomes very important because the first thing the French did is they sought assistance from the United Snakes of America to fund them, <laughs> to help them smite these Africans. Now the irony in that is that these same Africans who were enslaved under the French rule were actually sent to the United States. <laughs> Talk about it, big bro. To, to help those British colonists fight against the British crown. So historically, the United States becomes the first rebellion that was successful from the British crown in 1776. And it didn't really materialize until 1783 with the Treaty of Versailles. And the British wasn't done with him. And then came back in 1814 and fought again. It was like, okay, we're going to kiss the ring. Oh, big bro, don't forget about the Louisiana Purchase. Oh, oh, when, we, oh, oh, when, oh, oh, oh. When they, I, I, when they reached I, out to the he, Haitians. When they reached out to the Haitians for help. When the French yes, was kicking their ass. Yes, sir. This is, this is, this is very interesting that you, that you brought that up. So they, we, won't, we, they won't speak on Baton Rouge. What happened in Baton Rouge? In the late 1700s. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They don't understand why Baton Rouge is called Baton Rouge. Bloody stick. See, they won't tell you how the French devoured the American, the American soldiers. And see, then they got fed up and they called the Haitians. Mind you, we, we already warring with them in our homeland against Napoleon. Napoleon found out we was coming over. What did he do? He quickly signed that treaty. But whenever you go to New Orleans, you go to Jackson Square, who do you see? You see that bum Andrew Jackson on the horse as if he, he helped America, helped America gain the Louisiana Purchase from the French when he didn't yeah. do a thing. Every time he went to war, he lost terribly. Yeah, I knew. I knew when we got to talking about this the internal flames within you, you irritated genie would come out. I knew it. I feel it, right? Yeah. I knew it. I knew. No, no. This is great, brother. This is great because this is the point. Going back to what happened, peace be unto Jovenel Moise and his wife, right? Peace be unto them, but we have to be very clear of how imperialism worked and how it has always worked. what I would call gatekeepers or puppets to ensure that the West is able to pull the economic strings of countries and nations of African people. Yeah. Rayford Logan, our renowned historian from Howard University, to kind of understand how this thing plays itself out. In 1941, he wrote, the diplomatic relations of the United States with Haiti, 1776 to 1891. This is important if you want to know, see, he was writing and calling it what this new term of globalization in 1941, 60, 70, what's that, 80 years ago. <laughs> That's four generations. Ain't you? You know. You know. He's writing about how this thing plays itself out. That the moment Haiti got their liberation, 10 years after instituting it at 81, when they got it, the European, the Western world turned its back on it. 
It cut Haiti off from the international trade. It even went as far to get Haitians addicted to wheat. Cassava was the chief product that was used in Haiti, but they began to send it airplanes of it to get them addicted to wheat in which they used cassava less than they used to always use it. Doing what? Making them economically dependent. So we know I haven't been yet, and when I go, brother, you t- I'm going with you. But when I do go, we know the French, they, all the enslaved nations, when they were enslaving Africans in the Caribbean, they called Aiti the Pearl of the Antilles. Antilles. And, and you know what's so funny, big bro? They won't tell you after November 18, 1803, the Bata de Vietes, when mm. Haiti finally defeated the French. Do you want to tell you years after all these European powers came on the shores of Haiti and it was blown back by the cannons? The cannons shot them off the shores of Haiti because they tried to take the land from these rebellious Africans. Mm. They won't tell you that. They won't tell you. We had this one, um, I think he was a king, terrible king. I forget the name of the guy, but I hate him to this day. He sold Haiti to the French. He wrote a decree, signed a decree that Haiti was going to pay them back for the pain and suffering we caused them to gain our come on, independence. Come on, come on with it, brother. How they is made, that possible? They made France, when it was all after they had their independence, you are correct. What they did in order to have the nation, the sovereign nation of Haiti, they could not only cut them off from the international trade, they impoverished the nation by what you're speaking of, of basically making the Haitian government play France reparations for gaining their freedom. Yeah. You pay reparations to gain their freedom. But see, when, when you speak of they don't know, see, this is our jobs as the custodians of memory, right? This is our job. And we have had, we have and we've had African thinkers from the world over who have had these stories. I'm preaching to the choir, but we know in 1965, one of our master teachers from Trinidad and Tobago, C.L.R. James, Cyrus Lionel Robert James, who taught at Federal City College, which is known now as University of District of Columbia. He wrote the Black Jacobins, right? Tucson Overture and the San Domingo San Domingo Revolution, 1965. 18 years later, the most powerful piece to me that was written on the Haitian Revolution was by Jacob Carruthers. Yeah. It's a much smaller piece, but he gets to points in there that nobody else talked about. And the name of that book is called The Irritated Genie, written in 1985 an essay on the Haitian Revolution. And what's so great about that piece, he, not, he, he gives you, he said 1791 is when we give the start date of the beginning of the revolution, but he takes us even further back to show there were, in, there were the brothers and the sisters that was doing the fight. They've been banging against the system all the time. The there, was no, there was no, Africans have never been passive in being enslaved. We were always what we call today banging against the system. It's called maroonage. That it always happened. He not only wrote that, he was the first to give an analysis of Toussaint L'Overture because if you look at the literature, 
you can go all the way back to the 1920s. Joe A. Rogers, who was one of our historians that basically wrote about um, the world's greatest men of color, volume one and two. He was um, doing the time of um, Arthur Schomburg, in which the black the, the library in New York City is named after. But J. A. Rogers, you look at it, talk about Haiti in the early 20th century, Toussaint L'Overture, even with the black Jacobins. That's the L.I. James, Toussaint L'Overture. Jacob Carruthers get to it, and he basically gives an analysis that had not been gave before. And he said, listen, we have to give Toussaint L'Overture some credit, but let's look at the documentation. Toussaint L'Overture was a military man, and he was conditioned under the mind of French military man that okay. he wanted... He wanted liberation, but he was more focused on the liberation for his military men I who say. were in alignment with French more I than did. they were in alignment with their African say. self. Let's be clear. Yes, and that's why he got incarcerated. Rather, <clears throat> in... when I read that, I said, what? And that's he why brought... he died in incarceration. Yes, sir. And he brought to the limelight Bookman Duddy. He talked about Henry Kistar. He talked about when Jean-Jacques de Salonese was the one that put the proverbial nail in the coffin and said enough was enough, right? He talks about that. And then we can't forget about our brother who came 10 years later. I believe he's an ancestor now. Michel Rudolph Trujillo, silence in the past. Power in the production of history. His attempt to set the record straight in showing how history works, right? But we have... We have a scholar, and Dr. Gerald Horn has been writing for decades now. It's something about those brothers and sisters who go get law degrees and then turn stories of African history. They're a very special type of scholar. It's something about those. Gerald Horn is one. Dr. Greg Carr is one. Valethea Watkins is one. There's something about their analysis of basically looking at things is different. Dr. Gerald Horn, I remember I got one of his first books when he was doing black studies back in the early 80s. But easily, Gerald Horn is the most prolific writer today. Scholarship. And taking that intellectual baton from Cedric Robinson, who wrote Black Marxism, and the book is really, it's kind of, misleading when you read black Marxism, but really what that book is about is to show you that Africans have been banging against the system and have basically been marooned from the moment they was enslaved. And in the Spanish speaking country, they were Cimarrones, right? In Brazil, they set up the spaces called Quilombos, right? In Mexico, you had the African brother by the name of Gaspar Younger. For all those who know the hip hop, you know D Smoke? D yeah. Smoke out of company. D Smoke got a song with Snoop Ball, Snoop Dogg, and guess what the name of the song is? Gaspar Younger. Letting you know, revolution always took place. So Gerald Horn extends that conversation. And the man, don't give me the line. Gerald Horn may got forty books, brother. The elder's doing his thing. He's at the University of Houston, writing them all. And his his book, the most recent in dealing with Haiti, is called Confronting Black Jacobins. The United States, the Haitian Revolution, and the origin of the Dominican Republic. And, and, and you know, I'm glad that you mentioned that because what, what a lot of people won't tell you, when you look at the independence of a lot of countries, Haiti plays a part in it. When you look at America, Haiti plays a part in their 
their independence. Suppose mm-hmm. they suppose independence from the British rule. When you look at all throughout the um, South America, Haiti plays a part. This is when important. you think about countries like Bolivia, Colombia, you know, Venezuela, all these this countries to this day, they still have gratitude towards Haiti for what Haiti yeah. done for them. Even Dior, across the border, Dior. We freed those slaves from the Spaniards. And look at the things we get. Yeah, and you know, and that's, and unfortunately, I can't speak to all of them because when I was at Roxbury Community College, I had, I met one Dominican Republican that was an African to the core. She, her, her family denounced her because she basically got with who? And she married a Haitian. You ah. hear me? Ah. You hear me? Now you already know that's happening. Trust me. That she, you, she, brother, brother. She's the curse to the family for Listen, doing that. And she said, oh, well, I'm clear about what Haiti is, right? So, that 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 problematic what happens with the DR with that is that um, you this cognitive dissidence of not remembering or not wanting to remember history and becoming more Spanish than you are who you really are because you got a lion's share of that land called Hispaniola right and if you really look in 1963 DR calls themselves a sovereign nation but they're actually a directorate under the United States a law was passed in the United States in which they are under the rule of the United States. Ashay. People don't know that though. It's our job to teach him, right? It's our job to give it to him. But but the thing is, the thing is clear. Brother, I appreciate you for bringing it to the forefront because the revolution and the rebellions that had always took place here in the settler colony of the United States, as it basically got extremely heated, there's an area of the 19th century in the early 19th century let's say the 1828s if you're familiar with brother david walker yeah david walker's appeal now what's key about this is that all the african liberators all the africans who were on the front line seeking our liberation they all as you said turned to haiti because they saw haiti did it and they used that as inspiration Big you're talking time. about you talking about pan-african before the word became pan-african Man. david walker david walker writes David Walker's appeal to the colored citizens of the world. Of the world. He talking to African people and then just goes in. You're talking about one of the most caustic critiques on white nationalism, but he was clear that it was Haiti as that inspiration, right? He was clear. Those other thinkers, Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, the founders of the oldest Christian denomination, African Methodist Episcopal Church, turned to Haiti, Right? We'll go back to what you said. Those Haitians were kicking so much ass. What about our warriors? What about our warriors that was inspired? What about the Denmark VCs, the Nat Turners, and the others? Man, come listen, brother. They were so, listen, them Haitians was kicking booty so bad. Napoleon said, man, listen, I can't fight the wars in Europe and hold on these Africans. So he was able to negotiate who was the president at the time, Thomas Jefferson, in 1803, and say, man, here, you can just sell it. He sold, what we, call a, <clears throat> he sold what we call a Louisiana Purchase, right? But 15 states, if, if you look, if Alabama. You look at that map, come on with it, brother. You look at that map, New Orleans, it's majority, Texas, it's majority Oklahoma, of what we call the United States. Yes, sir. You know, Illinois, Kentucky, yes, Ohio. Yes. Yes. Come on. Put some respect on Haitians, man. Please. Yeah, you know, I just I just want to tell all melanin people, listen, it don't matter what culture you're from, what country you from, 
If you're a melanin being, we are all the same. So whether you Haitian, you Jamaican, you African, you Grenadian, you from wherever you from, at the end of the day, all melanin history is our history. Mm. So if you're a melanin being, Haitian history is your history just as much as my history. Even though I was born in that land, that history don't only belong to me, it belongs to you as well. You don't have to be born in Haiti to know that Haitian history is your history as well. Mm. Brother, I... Um... Ashe, Ashe, I'll, I'll tell you, you had mentioned the, the, those, those extensions. See, it's the Haiti inspired, right? That revolution here in the United States from Denmark Bessie, Gabriel Prasa, Nat Turner. But those are the names that we know, right? And there's there was many so more. many of us. And so, so many of them. But the point is, right? So many of them. But the point is this idea of Maroonage. Huh. Is never stop. This is why Africana studies is so key. Let's be very clear. In the Ivy Tower of the Academy, it is the only academic discipline that actually was mandated and was created out of rebellion. And you know, so funny, big brother. Talk to me, brother. You can't forget about Jamaica, the Queen Nanny. No, Queen Nanny and them. No, we don't. We don't. We don't forget oh, them all because it's all we're talking. What we're really talking about, and the reason why I brought up Semeronis, the reason why I talked about the Maroons, and, and we talk about the Maroons in Jamaica, we talk about the ones in Haiti. We talk. What you're really talking is about the African people, no matter where they are. Africans getting on a different boat, going in a different direction, being meaning making as African people, but also rebelling against the system. That's really the point we're talking about: banging against the system, fighting and doing the work. And this is why Africana studies is important. Because it was the again the only is the only academic discipline that was mandated and forced to become officially institutionalized in 1968. Now the genealogy of African history goes back to time immemorial itself, since Africans would create memory, right? Since they would create memory. However, what I call this discipline, if it's taught from an African perspective, and you throw away all Western ways of meaning meaning making, you throw it in the garbage or with the Spanish say sacar la basura, taking out the trash. When you really look at Africana studies, it is the intellectual arm of maroonage, of intellectual thought. Ashay. It's maroonage. That's Ashay. what it is. So that's, that's really what we're talking about. And brother, I tell you forward to when we get to talk about melanin, we're going to do a podcast strictly on melanin. I can't wait for it. And then we're going to do a podcast strictly on health. I can't wait for it. We're going to at least pull three out of it. At least three. Because as I said, when, you, when that African Holy Ghost get in you, man, listen, you taking me back to when I had the study group. We chopping it up on Tuesday night, started at 7. We up to 4 o'clock in the morning and got to go to work. <laughs> you feel me? Energize, <laughs> energize, you know, because of the conversation, the power coming out of the coming out of beings of these men and women just conversing is, is, is a very refreshing feeling. And to know that, first and foremost, I'm a I'm a ever living soul. I know the soul that's in me will forever live. But at the end of the day, on my journey on this earth, I have to respect and honor those who came before me, the ancestors who came before me. And I am those ancestors because I know I live many lives on this planet. You know? I'll even go to tell you, big bro, I, I was in the Haitian Revolution and I feel it like 
there's times no I've, I've, no I've traveled. No I've yes. traveled and I've Come seen myself. You Come know on. what I mean? And then I, I had an early death, but I killed a whole lot of them. I cooped that and bullied a whole lot of, a whole bunch of them. So what we're really talking about is just nothing but the re African the reawakening of the African mind. That's all. That's, That's all we're talking about. I, man, I wanted I wanted to speak about um one of one of our profound scholars, he's an ancestor now, but his work stays with us is Baba Kiev Bunseki Fukiao. Last name is F U dash K I A U. Kia. Key one day is the first one, but I think he keep it short for K. And then the second name is K-I-A. Bunseki. B is in boy. U-N-S-E-K-I. Last name Fukiao. F-U dash K-I-A-U. Now, Baba Fukiao. Peace be unto him. He's an ancestor now. The least scholar. I got introduced to him. In his book, African Cosmology in the Bantu. And he broke some things down. I said, ooh. Making the connection of how we deal with things cyclic in a circle. Making connection of looking how Africans really look at life. How we look at death. He has a small, powerful piece called It's the African art of babysitting. I'm going to give you the front title. It's, it's on my tongue, but this is a very powerful piece. And Baba Fukiao talks about, in this piece, African people at no point in time ever sent the elders to old folks' homes. Never. European concept. He said, it's called the African art of babysitting. You go to the elders. Kendizi. E-E-Z-I. Kendizi, the African art of babysitting. And he talked about you, the elders are the ones that the babies sit at their feet to get the nurturing, to get the wisdom, to get the loving, to talk about that. And this whole idea of you basically sending your mama or your grandmama or your, your great aunt to an old folks home is a Western concept. That was very powerful. But he has another book called Mbangi. M is in Michael, B is in boy, O-N-G-I, an African traditional political institution. And in a word, we just created Mbongi. What is it? It's the classroom without walls. Right? It's the classroom without walls. Check out Baba Fukiao, man. Very, very, very powerful scholar. Very powerful. And we use him. So we, we, the, the, the words have been written. Right? It's not what you read, it's who you read. It's who you read. And that's extremely important, my brother. I sure. That's extremely important, brother. So man, listen, I'm again, man, I'm so honored, brother. You know, no, I'm and, on, I'm man, big bro, you don't know how much I appreciate you just coming in on the check-in and the amount of jewels you just dropped. You just you dropped on the people. I don't know how they're going to process this. You know, I just hope, I just hope and pray none of this go over their heads. 
you know. Oh, man. And, and just, if it does, if it does, that means I just have more work to do, which I always do. And and this is this and we do this is just a dry run, sir. <laughs> this is just a dry run. We're gonna get a little bit more crispy and tighter on the next one, right? Oh, a little listen. bit more crispy and tighter, man. We are, brother. And listen, man, we you you did it, brother. And I I, I can't say enough. You keep doing what you do, brother. You inspire me that I already know it's coming for me. It's for me to go ahead and get me a podcast together, but everything has its time and space under the sun. But we honor you, brother. You keep doing what you do, man. I didn't see, listen, I, I done seen you. Ebony Phonics, right? Let's call it Patois what it is. In America, <laughs> Patois is Ebony Phonics, Ebony. We done seen you, brother. We done seen you do your thing. I look up Black Matrix, businessman. Entrepreneur, I see you. I see you. Then you set up, you set up a, you set up a podcast with an honorific term, combos with living legends. Man, listen, I can't even, brother. Listen, I appreciate you giving me that. I can't even hold that, man. I, man, I, I, you I, a living I'm legend, honored, big bro. Big bro, you honored, a living legend, man. But my point is, man, we honor you. Brother Moise, we honor you, brother. I'll you say, keep doing I, what I, you do. I, I receive it. Rest upon the shoulders of the ancestors, brother. Rest upon, continue to rest upon their shoulders and sit at their feet. May they give you the instruction. If you humble yourself, you receive the message and keep your, and just know you got a comrade in the struggle, brother. Always. No, we are linking this chain. We are linking this chain. Like we say in Black Man Lab, we are linking this chain and it won't break here. It will yes. not break here. Yeah, speaking it of that, that's what we met. That's what we met, brother. It, yeah, because I remember it like it was yesterday. I was sitting on the panel, and I was as I'm a passionate brother, and I was and basically the the topic of that that night was men like myself who who was in the streets, but they found a way to rehabilitate themselves to be the greatest version of themselves, and mm. like that's one of that moment as well as speaking to your students at Morehouse. Those two moments were key to me because I spoke to others to see older brothers come to me and come tell me they was inspired how I spoke. Like that it. brought life to me. That brought life to me. We got work to do. That so brought let's get life it in. We got, got two, we got work to do. A whole bunch, big bro. Yeah. And listen, we armed. We armed because we got we got the connect the dots and, and and the story has been written. So yeah, man, we'll get together, brother. You already know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, to the best of my ability. I'm making it happen. I'm laughing. You know, when I was, when I was young, I used to tease in my mind, the OGs like, oh man, they'd be like, I ain't getting no cell phone. No, I ain't doing that. Now, you know, I stayed away from the platform. I think I, I did more, I did more work on Twitter than anything. Cause there's a, there's an intellectual community that I tie in and, you know, we get to have conversations and, and Instagram, I mean, Twitter don't let you say too many words, right? You can't, you got to learn how a word economy, get exactly. it all out in some few words, right? So you test it, right? right? So you test your skill. IG never saw myself do IG brother, but I'm on IG now. I'm like, baby, I'm happy. In the, I'm happy in a baby in a candy store right now. Do you hear me? I'm learning things. And in my mind, I'm saying, how do I capture? How do I capture my people to get what I need to say? So I'm really excited about this, man. It's more to come. I got a lot of things in store, brother. I got a lot of things. The website is under construction. I got a lot of things in store. It's been downloaded to me. Now it's time. No more procrastinating. No more pussyfooting around. It is here. And I'm really, really excited, man, to know I got a comrade right there, brother. You know, I'm really, really excited. So just keep on what you're doing, brother. You are, you are what? Ababa, Jehudi Miss, Ka'in, 
Haru Hassan K. Salim, who wrote Spiritual Warriors Are Healers. You are an African warrior scholar. That's what you are, an African warrior scholar. See, the difference between a soldier and a warrior. Now, Atlanta's own, you know, the master teacher there, him and his wife have a home school, Baba Baruti, who's wrote many books, an unapologetic African. And he said the difference between a scholar and a warrior is so, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, a soldier and a warrior is soldiers get paid to fight. Warriors fight because they're duty bound. So you're an African warrior scholar, brother. So just keep doing your work, man. Lead, as, as our ancestors said, lead with your left foot forward because that's your heart so that you can continue to stop evil. I share, I share, I You don't know how how grateful I am you on you on this podcast with me. Like I just I'm just elated to to know when once I release this for people to hear all the gems that you drop or all, all these uh I don't know. All you all all you've been saying is a whole bunch of affirmations and manifestations. That's mm-hmm. all I heard come out your mouth. <laughs> Was a whole bunch of affirmations and manifestations towards the liberation and the greatness of the African people. Thank you, brother. Madasi Pa, man. And listen, I am um, more work to do, brother. You know, we sharpen it. Iron sharpens iron. Steel sharpens steel, right? So let's do keep doing what you do, my brother. And listen, you are you know what it is. We're gonna get the build in the in the near future, man. Just keep on. I salute you, warrior. Keep doing what you do. You already know as in your words, love is love. Love is love. I love you, big bro, man. I, I appreciate I you for coming you on this more, check-in. Brother. I, I love, love you, you for more, coming brother. on this check-in, for giving me this opportunity, you know, to, to spread the spread these wonderful positive affirmations to our people. Come Let on, them man. Know. You already know what it is. Until next time, part two and then part three. We here, big bro. Shimo tap, brother. I go in peace. Oh, most definitely. And to all the people on the check-in, man, thanks again for tuning in. This is the big brother of mine, Dr. Huru. We appreciate him for coming on the check-in. I appreciate everybody who tuned into this episode, episode 17. This is Convo with Living Legends with yours truly, God with many visions. Peace to the goddesses, peace to the gods, and peace to the, all the Africans out there. We love y'all. Until we meet again. Peace. My brother.